0: amen that was wonderful and thank you for singing with me in a church that doesn't corrupt the sound with an organ and a piano a rock band or a punk band thinking that that's going to make it pleasing to the lord to hear the voices of the redeemed singing amazing grace how sweet the sound that's the sound i want to hear i want the melody from your heart not the melody from a bunch of chicken wire stretched In a big box called a piano I want to hear it from your hearts and your voices and that's the New Testament order and we try to follow it let's open our Bibles this evening again to Psalm 5 Psalm 5 now brethren you just sang a song by a man named John Newton called amazing grace John Newton as you could tell if you look at the top lived about 300 years ago and he was a wild slave trader between, in, between England and Africa. And he, was, he couldn't even be an honest slave trader. He was put in prison for ungodliness as even measured by the other slave traders, which was a profligate, profane industry to be in, the abuses that took place in gathering the slaves and in transporting them. Right. But that man found amazing grace. Amen. Because as I started out this evening, Jeremiah said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, have I drawn you. And here this crazy man, addicted and sold out to sin, in the middle of a storm, thinking he was going to lose his life, the Lord came to him and gave him amazing grace. When he writes, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, he meant it because his heart didn't fear anyone, And it certainly didn't fear the Lord. But with loving kindness, God drew him. And if the story were told of each of us, was it the grace of God that taught your heart to fear? I was taught about the fear of God all my life and ran in the opposite direction. A foolish brat. But thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Not only has he loved us from eternity, he has drawn us with his loving kindness and brought us to fear his name. And I hope we're all thankful. All of that was to say, thank you for singing with me without a bunch of noise, so that I could hear the redeemed. And I can't wait to get to heaven, where the crowd will be expanded a little, because we're gonna to go to the General Assembly in heaven, all those that have their names written in the Book of Life, mm-hmm. right. and we shall sing forever, and you'll never get a sore throat. May the Lord be praised. Amen. Amen. I don't want to take very long this evening, but I want to review what we covered this morning because it's necessary and I want our children to know it. Now what I'm preaching this day is totally unpopular with everyone. We We are in a very small minority. We are not the only ones, but we are in a very small minority. What we believe on this subject was once commonly held, but no longer. And I hope that now you'll understand that, and your children will learn it, and they'll know where to go in their Bibles. I've turned you to Psalm 5.5 as the first reference. We want to answer the question, does God love everybody? Does God love everybody? If God loves everybody, what in the world does it mean, since it didn't accomplish anything for any of them? And so much more could be said about this question, does God love everybody? It is taught today, a watered-down gospel of Christianity, that God loves all men without distinction and without exception, every single one of them. He loves them all equally, and he wants so desperately to save all of them, but he's unable to save the vast majority of them because they're just a little too stubborn for the Lord Jehovah. And so he'll send most of them to hell, even though he loves them with all of his heart. If the love of God is shown and expressed and realized by its objects with an eternity in hell, he has a strange way of showing his love. So many things could be reasoned out from their false doctrine that are all a waste of our time, because it is not reasoning that brings us to the truth but reasoning in the scriptures and letting the word of God tell us. Psalm 5, 5. Here we are. Let's read it again. Psalm 5, 5 says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now we've got to deal with that verse. There's 31,173 verses in your Bible, but we need to deal with this one. We don't want to leave it. We want to believe it. We want to understand about our God. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Verse 4 tells us, Neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. They will be put out of his sight, because there will be no fools in the presence of God. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. We covered that this morning. I just want to remind you, and I want all of you children to know where we start to turn in our Bibles when we address the question, does God love everybody? Well, the question is being answered. Psalm 5.5, 5, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Well, right. Psalm 11, God does not love everybody. God hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11 and verse 5. If you can remember five five, then hopefully you can remember 11.5, and you've got the two from Psalms. Now there's more. But these are the two plainest. Psalm eleven five: The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. This is the same group of people. The wicked, God does not love them. God hates them. The Lord tries the righteous, His elect, His saints, believers. Call them whatever you will. The Lord tries them. He chastens them. Any adversity in their life is because of love that brings it into their life to make them better, to keep them back from sin, and to prove his love of them. The same way a parent loves his child, by bringing adversity to his backside in order for him to be turned away from evil and to know that his parents love him. That's the first part of this verse. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence a person that loves doing violence to the reputation of a man or doing violence to the body of a man or doing violence to unborn babies as in our society with abortion, the Lord hateth them, it tells us. In fact, it tells us the Lord's soul hates them. This is the word of the Lord. And so when we ask, ask the question, does God love everybody, we first answer, no, God does not love workers of iniquity. He hates them. Let's go to the next verse. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. Oh, my brothers and sisters, the love of God is only as precious as it accomplishes something. And if we spread it too wide, wider than God ever spread it, we're going to see it accomplishing nothing. If God loves all men without distinction or exception, then those in hell have as much right to sing about the love of God as those in heaven because there is no difference between the two places nor the two groups of people. And that is not true. We're going to be singing about the love of God in heaven for all that it did for us and saved us from that awful place that we all deserve. Matthew chapter seven and verse 23, these are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read them now, but some men will hear them later. These are words that will be spoken in the great day of judgment. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. When we ask the question, does God love everybody? We must answer it from this verse saying, God does not love those he never knew, because the knowing here is love. When he says, I never knew you, it doesn't mean he didn't know of you. He didn't. It doesn't mean he doesn't know about you. He knows all about the wicked. That's why he knows they're wicked. That's why he tells them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. I never had an affectionate relationship towards you. I never loved you. You have no, nothing in common with me. Out of my sight, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And Notice it's the same group of people again. Ye that work iniquity, in Psalms it was workers of iniquity. The same group of people. Those that are still lost in their sins. Those that are left in their sins. Jesus Christ will say those words to them. I'm not making this up. And I'm not going to let you get away with just the sound of words. We need to think about the sense of those words. I never knew you. He knew all about them but he never knew them in an affectionate relationship of love. So in answer to the question, does God love everybody? No, God doesn't love those he doesn't know, because by saying he never knew them means he never loved them. Amen. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The Apostle Paul, writing the Hebrew Christians, exhorted them not to be discouraged with the Lord's chastening. And here's how he did it. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now when it says that all partake of the chastening of God, Does that mean all men or all sons? All sons. sons, Because the ones that don't get chastened by God are what he calls here bastards. Now, let's think about it. If God chastens all of his sons, and if he chastens all those that he loves, what does that tell us about the bastards? They're not his sons, and he doesn't love them. If he loved them, he would chasten them, because it says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth but there's a whole category of men that God does not chasten because he does not love them. They are not his sons. They are bastards. They are outside the redemption of Jesus Christ, and they shall suffer for their sins for an eternity in hell, and we belong there. But by the grace of God, he has saved us from that judgment in Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We need to keep asking the question, does God love everybody? No, he doesn't love those that are bastards, because we just read that in Hebrews 12. How could he love them? He said he chastens everyone that he loves, but he doesn't chasten bastards. Children, the word may be in the Bible, and, we, and your parents understand it, but you don't have to use it at school tomorrow toward one of your classmates. Romans chapter eight, and I'm not going to apologize for it because it's a very meaningful word. Right. What's a bastard? It's someone born out of wedlock that doesn't belong. Right. It's a perfect word. And the Lord chose it, and will let it suffice. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 39, tells us, it, this is part of a sentence because the sentence began at verse 38, it's listing many things that cannot separate us from the love of God. And it says in the second half of this 39th verse, Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God toward men is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Right. If you are not in Christ Jesus, God does not love you. Right. Because the love of God is in Christ Jesus. If you're outside of Christ Jesus, God does not love you. The Bible says it plainly right here in Romans eight thirty-nine. It tells us a lot here in Romans 8, 39. Not only does it tell us that the love of God is in Christ Jesus, but also that we can never be separated from it. Would you tell me that those in hell are not separated from the love of God? Are you going to affirm that and say that? That those in hell are still under the love of God? They're still bound up in it? They're still basking in it? They're still wrapped up in it? It says we shall never be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are you trying to tell me that God loved all of those that are lost and perishing in hell as much as he loved those that are saved and forever in heaven, but then he just changed his mind and decided to hate them later? None of it makes sense. None of it makes sense unless we understand that all the love of God is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And those that are in Christ Jesus, our Lord, can never be separated from that love and shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. Amen. Does God love everybody? No. He doesn't love those outside the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God loved someone, God gave his son for them. If God gave his son for them, he will infallibly and certainly give them everything else. Because the reasoning is this. This is reasoning from the greater to the lesser. And the apostle is using it very well. If God gave his only begotten son, he will certainly give every other blessing that goes along with that son. That's what verse 32 tells us. If God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, and that us all is Paul the writer and the Romans the hearers and everyone else that can put themselves in the shoes of the Roman hearers whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world and who were called to be saints. That's the us all. If God gave his son for them, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Everyone in hell was never loved by God because God did not give his son for them nor all the other blessings that went with that son. Because all of those blessings are realized by all those that God loves. Does God love everybody? He does not love sinners. He does not love those he doesn't know. He doesn't love those that aren't his sons. He doesn't love those outside Christ. And he doesn't love those that will be separated from him in hell. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 and figure out why he can love us because we are no better than they. There is no difference at all. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen. There is no difference. It doesn't matter between Jew or Gentile, man or woman. It doesn't matter what creed, nation, culture, or any other thing. We are all sinners and come short of God's glory. But here's what it tells us, and children, and my, and my young people, I want you to learn these things and be established in the doctrine that is according to godliness. Not the doctrine taught in this world. God loves his elect, the family of God, his children, those that he has purposed to save from before the world began. God didn't make the world and then get into trouble with Adam and Eve sinning. God made the world knowing that Adam and Eve were going to sin and having already planned a perfect remedial action, and that is for his elect to be saved, to manifest his glory, his grace, and his kindness for eternity, and to manifest his wrath and his power on the rest, just like he did with the angelic realm. He let a third of heaven fall with the devil. The third of the angels went with the devil, and they are reserved in chains under judgment until the great day. He elected the other angels and chose them and kept them by his almighty power in their first estate. Here's what it tells us, and this is precious. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, and God has blessed us with them. And the us here is Paul the writer and the Ephesians the readers. And we, if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the Ephesians because we have the same character as them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. All of them. How do we get them? You know, the next verse tells us how we got them. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, God chose the Ephesian saints and us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. That is how we get into Christ. That is how we get all the spiritual blessings that are in him. And that is how God can love us because let's keep reading. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Amen. Are you a worker of iniquity? I'm a worker of iniquity. If the truth be told, I'm a worker of iniquity. If the true, full truth be told, I'm a fool, and the foolish shall not stand in his sight. But do you know what? I was chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began so that God could look at me as being holy and without blame before him in love. Amen. How do I stand in the presence of God and am loved by him? How have I always been loved by God? Because he chose me in Jesus Christ, and when he looks at Jonathan Crosby, and as he has always looked at Jonathan Crosby, even before there was an Adam and an Eve, he saw me holy and without blame, and he loved me because I was in Christ Jesus. That is the message of the Bible Amen. God has his people, and he has loved them with an everlasting love, and he has left the others to their just deserts. The human race does not deserve a Savior. God is not fair. He's better than fair. He's gracious. He's merciful. If he was fair, no one would be saved. He's not fair. He's gracious, and he has saved his elect. He chose the Ephesians and us, if you make your calling and election sure. He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, that we would be holy. He never saw us as workers of iniquity, When he says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, he never saw you as a worker of iniquity because he chose you in Christ Jesus that you would be holy and without blame, in love. He has always loved you because you've always been in Christ by his eternal choice before the Garden of Eden ever existed. How did we become the sons of God? The next verse tells us, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. How do we become the children of God? It's right there. God predestinates us, that is to determine the destiny beforehand of us being the children of God by Jesus Christ to himself. How did God pay the price to redeem us from the claims of his law? By sending Jesus Christ to die for us and by that that payment to the orphanage of sin, he was able to adopt us as his sons and daughters and he predestinated us to that end. And Jesus Christ paid the price for it, and it was according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, see, everyone today wants to teach the good pleasure of the sinner's will. Sinner, your salvation is up to your will. You can make a choice tonight and be saved, but that is not what the Bible teaches. That is modern-day heresy. The Bible teaches, according to the good pleasure of His will, He chose and He predestinated before the world began. That's what the Bible teaches. To the praise of the glory of His grace. If it's all of His will, guess what? When we get to heaven, all of the praise is going to be to the glory of His grace. If it's my will, when I get to heaven, the praise is going to be the glory of my will. If God loved everyone in heaven and hell equally, and Jesus Christ died for everyone in heaven and hell equally, and the Holy Spirit tried to save everyone in heaven and hell equally, the ones that get to heaven are going to be there by the praise of the glory of their will. But brethren, we don't get there by our will. We get there by the will of God, and this is what the Bible teaches. And it's glorious, and love it. Rejoice in Him. When we get there, it's not going to be because we're better than those in hell. It's not going to be because we did something they didn't do. We're going to be there because God did something for us He didn't do for them. And praise His glorious name. Amen. Praise to the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. God made us accepted in the Beloved, which is in Christ Jesus. God made us acceptable to Him. The foolish can't stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. So he made us acceptable to him in his beloved Christ Jesus. And how did he do that? He chose us in him before the world began. And 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ came and lived an absolutely perfectly flawless life and died a perfect substitutionary death and rose again the third day for me and for you so that we can be made accepted in the beloved. And unto you that believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, he is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling, even whereunto they were appointed. First Peter chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is all right there. It's God choosing us in Christ before the world began so that he could love us. That's why we're workers of, we know that we're workers of iniquity. You know you've sinned. But those have already been paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and God already saw you eternally as not having a single sin on your account and that's why he could set his love upon a holy object. And he has always loved us and he always shall love us and we shall never be separated from his love and we will never hear the words, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, because Jesus Christ paid for all those iniquities. Why will he say that to others? Because Jesus Christ did not pay for their iniquities. That's why Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And they will be in hell according to Revelation 21.8 because they are liars, because they are whoremongers, because they are sorcerers, because they are idolaters. Jesus didn't pay for those sins. <coughs> Does God love everybody? He loves his elect that he chose in Christ to be holy and without blame. He predestinated them to be his sons in Christ Jesus and he made them acceptable in the beloved. Those are the ones God loves. Right. And they are the only ones that can sing about the deep, deep love of Jesus and the wonderful love of God and the grace of God, because it is all of him. Let's consider a few other things about this love of God. You know, the Bible says rather plainly in one, two places, it says it in Malachi and it says it in Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. There's a simple distinction that God made. Do you know how plain he gets about that, those particular twin boys? He says, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said unto her, now good or evil, they had not done any good or evil yet themselves, but had they both already done evil? Yes, Yes, in their father Adam, they had both already done evil. It was said, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. You're close by. You should still be at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 and think think on another thought that the Bible tells us about answering the question, does God love everybody? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, 525. Husbands, love your wives. Now he's going to set a standard on how husbands should love their wives. Husbands, love your wives even as in precisely the same way as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Mm-hmm. There is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, holy and without blemish. Now, we're, we're asking the question, does God love everybody? If God loves everybody... What kind of value does this meaning have for a standard for husbands to love their wives? If God loves everybody equally, without exception and without distinction, then I ought to love your wife as much as I love my wife. Oh, come on, please. I hope that you're you're mentally deep enough to figure that one out, because that's not all that profound. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He set his affection on the church, and he didn't on every other available object for that affection. He put it on the church that he had chosen in Christ Jesus. If God loves all men indiscriminately and promiscuously, because that's what kind of love it is, if it's going to be expanded to everyone and without accomplishing nothing, it's a promiscuous love. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's not a dedicated love because he's going to toss most of them anyway, even though he supposedly loved them. Because, see, that's all a heresy. It doesn't make any sense, and it's disgusting to even talk about it. The issue is Jesus Christ loved his church, and his church are those that are in him. And Jesus Christ loved them, and husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is to focus their attention on their wives and on no other, just like Jesus Christ put his affection on his church and on no other. May the Lord help you to see that. It's plain and it's beautiful. We read this morning that the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. The Lord loves the righteous. If a man has no righteousness, there's nothing in him for God to even love. And God couldn't love him if God chose to love him. God would have to put that person in the Lord Jesus Christ who had absolutely perfect righteousness for him. You say, you say to me, yes, it does say that the righteous Lord loveth righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright, but I know that I'm not perfectly righteous. Oh, yes, you are. You're perfectly righteous legally before God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And all the imperfections that you have, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Amen. Yes, you are. You are Righteous. You know, the Bible tells us that God only loves those that He sends the Holy Spirit to, and in their hearts, it sheds abroad the love of the Holy Ghost. I mean, the love of God. God only loves those that He sends His Holy Spirit to, to come into their hearts and to convince them that God loves them. And do you know who He sends that Holy Spirit to? His sons. And what does that Holy Spirit cause His sons to say back to God? Abba, Father. Does He send that Spirit to all men? Not a chance. He sends it to those that he predestinated in Christ to the adoption of sons. And once they're born and regenerated, he sends that Holy Spirit into their hearts. Listen, have you all had that experience? Have you known it from time to time? When the Holy Spirit will come in power in your heart and you know you're a child of God. And you want to shout. You may want to cry. You may hardly be able to breathe. You are so overcome by the love of God for you. Do you know about that? If you don't know about it, you must question whether you are one of God's elect because God will send His Spirit into the hearts of His children and shed abroad that love. But He doesn't send it to everybody. He sends it to His sons, and it's His sons that say, Abba, Father, dear Father, Daddy, I love you, Lord God, and thank you for loving me. Have you ever laid in your bed at night just telling the Lord how much you love Him and knowing how much He loves you? That is the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God. Do you think the wicked are living in their beds, thinking those thoughts? Those are from the Holy Spirit of God. The Bible tells us that, the, that the God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. Now, does that sound like God loves them? He's angry with the wicked every day. Why doesn't anybody read the Bible? What about Noah's flood? Okay, I hardly ever have visual aids. What's wrong with this picture? I never have visual aids. Listen, this is Noah's Ark. This is Noah's Ark and it's floating in deep water. And there's people with their last breaths trying to scratch their way through that gopher wood. Now is that a true picture of something that happened in the history of this world? Amen. This picture though has two life rings hanging on the side of the Ark with a smiley face in them that says smile God loves you now if you want to go around with a smiley face on your bumper which no apostle ever did nor did the Lord Jesus Christ you have left the path of godliness and the path of understanding you've left the Word of God the question is what is wrong with this picture it's not the ark it's not the water and it's not people drowning because the entire earth's population drowned except eight souls because they found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But what is wrong is this smiley face, smile, God loves you. That is not in the Bible. That is a caricature of God. The holy Jehovah is not smiling and sending his love on all sinner rebels. The only way he can smile and send his love on us is because he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, and he chose Noah in Christ Jesus before the world began. Noah was one of God's elect. Why don't they think about the flood? Should Noah have been yelling out from the, the flood, from the ark? Smile. God loves you. I want a lifeline, not the love of God. But he loves you. He loves you. I know I sound so wickedly sarcastic. The flood is a real event. Nobody wants to deal with it. There were handicapped people and little babies. There were old people in the retirement home. There were young couples that were just about to get married. They never got to realize their nuptial bliss because God drowned them all. And he he didn't take them out easily. He suffocated them all with water because the world was wicked, and the thoughts of men's hearts was only wicked and evil continually from their youth, and we live in a society of those kind of people, and if you think God isn't coming back to burn up the world just like he did that time, you do not understand the God of the Bible, and you are not going to be prepared for the surprise that's coming on this world. It is coming, Amen. and the angels are not going to come down and be telling them all, smile, God loves you, God is angry with the wicked every day. Look in your Bibles at Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're answering the question, does God love everybody? You say, well, what about John 3.16? Yeah, well, what about it? Do you think it contradicts all these verses? Do you think it contradicts them? Do you think that Jesus met with Nicodemus to tell him a secret? God loves every Jew and Gentile that's ever been born in the history of this world, and he sent Jesus Christ to die for every single one of them. Do you think he was telling Nicodemus that? Nope. He was telling Nicodemus things Nicodemus had never dreamed of in all of his seminary training, and he told him three of them. Number one, you've got to be born again to even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was so ignorant in his Ph.D., Th.D., and M.Div. degrees that he said, how do I get into my mother's womb the second time? Jesus said, if you can't figure this one out, how are you going to figure out anything else I tell you? Number two, God, the the Messiah of God, is coming to be put on a pole like the brazen serpent was in the book of Numbers for the people of Israel. The Messiah of God that the Israelites looked at as a Savior to deliver them politically and militarily from the power of Rome, that Savior, which they thought was going to come in glory and grandeur, was going to be hanging on a pole. That was number two thing he told him. That's verses 14 and 15. Number three thing, and God didn't just love you Jews, God loved the world, and he meant by the world, he has his elect among the Gentiles as well as among the Jews. That world is the elect of God among Jews and Gentiles, and he laid three bombs, on Nicodemus, that Nicodemus had never dreamed of. He had to be born again in order to ever see the kingdom of the Messiah. Number two, the Messiah was coming with a spiritual kingdom in which he would give his life on a pole rather than riding a white horse at the front of Jewish armies that would throw off the yoke of Rome. And three, that Savior that was coming was not just limited to the nation of Israel, but to the world. And the world was used, as it is in the New Testament, to mean Gentiles in distinction to Jews. Right. You say, you couldn't prove that to me with the Bible? Do I need to do that right now nope. I hope everybody here already knows that you can go to Romans chapter 11 and verse 12 and find it out for yourself that the word world is used as because see the word world doesn't mean everybody without exception or distinction hardly any time in the Bible and it's used many times but it hardly ever means that so what about John 3 16. Do you think God there is refuting everything else he told? No, he's laying a little surprise on Nicodemus, that there's Gentiles also included in that great number for whom God was going to send his son. And remember, for whom God sent his son, he would also give them everything else. That number is limited to those that are in heaven. You can figure that out by the context. What do you do with a verse like Luke 2:1, where it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, a decree went out that, the whole, that all the world should be taxed. What do you do with that word? What do you do with the words all the world should be taxed in the days of Caesar Augustus? Don't you limit yourself down to that particular year and the particular people that were under the authority of the Roman government? Yep. Right. Don't we take the whole earth's population and just shrink it right down to a very small number of people that were taxed by the Roman Empire even though it used the words all the world? Yeah, we limit it way down. Just like we do in John 3:16, Do you know why we limit it way down? So the love of God remains the pure, beautiful, glorious, praiseworthy thing that it is according to the rest of the Word of God. That when it sets its affection on someone, that person will be infallibly saved and spend eternity praising the glory of His grace. Amen. Yes, we limit it. Of course we limit the word world because the Bible expects us to limit the word world because the word world doesn't mean every human being from Adam from the beginning to the end without exception or distinction. It doesn't mean that in the Bible. Go read the Bible. You know, you go to 1 John. He says in one place, he is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. You go to the next chapter and it says, the whole world lieth in darkness. The Pharisees said the whole world has gone after him. Now, why would the Pharisees say that the whole world was gone after Jesus when there were only a few hundred that followed him? Were they following him? Or were they excluding themselves from their use of the word world? That's incredible, isn't it? And that's throughout the Gospel of John. John uses the word world more than any other, other apostles. And if you go read the Gospel of John, first, second, third John, and Revelation, all of which are written by the same man, you'll find him using that word world in a very broad way in all sorts of different contexts, and we're to limit it by its context. Amen. And when it says, for God so loved the world, it doesn't mean that God loved the world so very, very much and was so desperately, desperately eager to save them that he sent his son. And it's not what the word so means. So is an adverb. It means in this precise manner. God, in this precise manner, loved the world. Where's the explanation going to be? In the next clause, with the conjunction that, that he gave his only begotten son. Now, who did he give his only begotten son for? But his elect, like we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, remember, if you're still wondering about John 16, two years ago, I preached a sermon to you called John 3.16, Revisited. The outline is on the internet. You can go pull the four pages down, single-spaced. All it does is deal with the Gospel of John showing you that John understood John 3.16 while no one else does today. Because John had just explained unless a man's born again, he'll never believe on Jesus Christ. Well, then the verse doesn't... The verse is not an offer of salvation to everyone. The verse is a description of those that Jesus Christ would die for. Those that believed on him because that was the whole purpose John wrote. Remember why John wrote? These things that are written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right, right. John didn't write for anyone to get eternal life. John wrote to those that had it, that they might know they had it. Right. And that they might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ even more. 1 John five thirteen, John twenty thirty and 31. You got to go back and visit that sermon. I don't know why they don't. Why, they, why don't they put up Psalm 5, 5 in football stadium end zones? Psalm 5.5, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Do you know why they don't? Because everyone in there is a fool. Oh, there might be an exception. Forgive me. There might be an exception. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Why don't they want to put that up? I mean, that verse would cause men to fear the Lord. But just thinking that God's a great big puff of cotton candy in the sky that you can grab a whole of and melt down to a couple drops of sugar water in your hand or your mouth, That doesn't cause anyone to fear the Lord. look Look at what the Bible tells us in Psalm 139. This is a man after God's own heart. There's so many of you in here that have told me you wish you could be like David, boys, girls, men, women, and I'm glad for that because David had a heart like the Lord's heart. Psalm 139 and verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred, I count them mine enemies. Now there are two verses from a man that is after God's own heart and look what he says about the enemies of God. I hate him and I hate him with a perfect hatred. Now was he doing something that God couldn't stand? Was he doing something that God considered unrighteous or was David expressing the heart of God himself? Was David truly a man after God's own heart? Here it is. He hated the workers of iniquity. He hated them with perfect hatred. A holy, righteous, justified, godly hatred. It wasn't for any personal offense against him. He doesn't say, I hate my enemies. I hate those that have offended me. I hate those that have persecuted me. He says, I hate those that hate thee, O Lord. If they're your enemies, they're my enemies. And I hate them with a perfect hatred, O Lord. God's love is not a part The promiscuous scattering of God's love is not a part of Bible evangelism. Where is the evangelism of the New Testament? What book of the Bible? The Acts of the Apostles, 28 chapters of the Apostles, particularly the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest of the Apostles, going forth throughout the Roman world and preaching the Gospel. But they were very selective, weren't they? When Paul would go into a town, he would only go to one place. The synagogue. Why would he go to a synagogue? Why didn't he go to a jail? Why didn't he go to the brothels? Why didn't he go to the supermarket? Why didn't he go to the 7 Eleven, the Sphinx station? Why didn't he go to some place like that? Why didn't he go to Walmart and stand out in front of it and tinkle his little Salvation Army bell? Why didn't he do that? He went to the synagogue where there were people that feared God. And so he would get up when they'd give him a chance, God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. And you know, the Bible tells us that that was Paul's manner in every city. And when he couldn't find a synagogue to go to, he would look for some place where people were praying. Like in Philippi, before he could get to the synagogue, he found a place where women would gather by a river and pray there's where he went with the gospel to tell them that a Savior had arrived. The Messiah was here, Jesus of Nazareth. Believe on him. Don't keep wondering when the Messiah is going to be here. He had a message for people that feared God. He did not go to the jails and in other places where people did not fear God. He went where men feared God, and that is the evangelism that we can read about in the book of Acts. And he says that was the manner of Paul. To go where those feared God, and to reason with them out of the scriptures showing that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Now, there's 28 chapters in Acts. Love has 13 forms in your Bible. Love, loved, loving, lovingly, beloved, 13 forms. Not a single one is in the book of Acts. Isn't that amazing? But you know what? Do you think judgment's in the book of Acts? Amen, dude. Sometimes Paul would be pulled places he wasn't really looking to go, like Mars Hill. When Paul got on Mars Hill, and he had an opportunity with all these philosophers, and he started talking about God, God that made the heavens, he's saying, I believe in a creator God. Listen, brothers and sisters, that was the perfect opportunity for him to say, I want to tell you about this God that created the heavens. Smile. He loves you. It was perfect. The moment was set. They wanted to hear Paul. They had taken him to Mars Hill, and there he stood in the Areopagus with all these Greek philosophers around him, and they all wanted to know about his religion. He, wasn't it perfect? I, th- I think it was the absolute most perfect time in the world because if he could have got that message out, all these philosophers could have brought it into their philosophy that God just loves everybody. That's right. He says, the Lord, God that made the heavens... thinks you're all a bunch of superstitious people and would never live in any of your hand-built temples. And he has raised his son Jesus from the dead to give assurance that he is coming to judge the world. And he once winked at your ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Amen. I like that message. You know, that message presents to me a glorious God, and I hope you love him this morning, this evening, because he loves us. Look at that opportunity he had and what he said on Mars Hill. Mm -hmm. That's Bible evangelism. That's evangelism that you can find in the Bible. The Apostle Peter comes to the house of Cornelius. He comes to the door, whoa, they've got a real assembly here. Cornelius, his family, his friends, his servants, they're all there. He looks at him and he says, perfect opportunity, wasn't it, brethren? Mm -hmm. You Gentiles have never heard this. I'm going to lay the sweetest bomb on you you've ever heard. Smile. Jesus loves you. Why didn't he say that? Do you know what he said? He looked at them. There they were, all eager. They were like Proverbs eight thirty four. They were hearing. They were waiting daily at the gates. They were watching. He said, of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness, is accepted with him. Amen. That's what he said. Yep. He said, I can tell by your righteous lives that you are already accepted with the God of heaven by the fear of God that you have and by the righteousness that you're doing. And then do you know what he, what he taught on? I can't quote you this verse, so I'm going to have to read it to you. Here's what he said. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Amen. Now, I am called an absolute radical. I am called lots of things worse than that. But I'll tell you what, I want to line up with Paul and I want to line up with Peter. Amen. And when Peter had those, all those Gentiles for the first time to hear the gospel, He said, God has commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus Christ, which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. When Festus said, Paul, preach to me about your faith, Paul reasoned with him of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Why didn't he tell that Roman governor about the love of God. Because depending on how that man responded to a message on righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, that is the evidence whether you can tell a person that God loves them. That's right. Do you understand that? Amen. You do not go out and spread the love of God like it is the love of a whore. A whore loves everyone and anyone God has set his love on his people, and he will bring them all the way home, and he will never cast them out. But doesn't the Bible teach that God is love? Yes, it says that God is love. Does that tell you who he loves? Does that tell you how he loves? Does that tell you how long he's going to love? And does that tell you who he doesn't love? Or does it just say that God has a capacity for loving and does, in fact, love in those three words? We go to the rest of the Bible to find out more. And you can find that expression in, God, the God, in the first epistle of John two times. But I want to tell you, if you want to start bandying about little candy canes like that, that God is love, I want you to start in the first chapter of that epistle and learn this first, God is light. Amen. God is holy before God loves, because God can only love things that are holy. God's love is restricted by His holiness. God's holiness is restricted by nothing. And the Bible tells us in the beauty of holiness we are to worship God, not in the beauty of love. We worship God in the beauty of His holiness. Are, are you all with me on that? Somebody lays God His love on you Ask them if they even know where that's coming from. It's First John. It's there twice. And then tell them that in the first chapter, God wants to set the record straight. God is light. He is holy first. And that's why he had to choose us in Christ before the world began so that we would be holy and without blame so that he could love us. Yes, God is love, and God has loved us. What should this love of God do for us? We've prayed tonight that we might know the full height of, depth, length, and breadth of the love of Christ until we are all filled with the fullness of God. If his love is scattered indiscriminately to all men, and it doesn't really accomplish anything for any man, how valuable is it? But, oh, brethren, the love of God saved us. The love of God reached down into this filthy place and rescued us when we were a rebel. It should mean everything to us, and we should love to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That is the love of God. No one in hell will ever be able to sing about the love of God because the love of God will never lose any of its objects. Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. I know I quote this, quoted this this morning. Don't think that I'm, a, I have a, I'm 46, but it's not that weak yet. My memory, that is. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Brethren, that's what we believe. God has set his love on a people from before the world began, and he will not lose a single one of them. No, not one. The rest will be lost because he never set his affection on them, and they're going where they deserve, and they're going where we deserve. That's why we're going to praise the glory of his grace through all eternity. Should God's love constrain us to serve him? Brethren, don't you want to tremble before him? Don't you want to live a righteous life? I love the words, stand in awe and sin not. Psalm 4.4, when you think that God did not have to put his love upon you like they believe, See, they believe God has to love you because God is so full of love he can't even control it. He has to love everybody and everything that he ever made, no matter how they're behaving. They love to call it unconditional love these days. It doesn't matter what you do, what you say, where you go, or what you do, your activities, your character, or anything, God has to love you. Because we're lovable, existentialism, I'm value because I'm valuable because I exist. Do you want a definition of a philosophy? It's existentialism. It's humanism. It's the philosophy of our nation. I'm valuable because I exist. Now, is, that is really stooping down into the gutter, isn't it, of philosophy? Right. I'm valuable because I exist. God doesn't have to love. God chose to love. He didn't love the devil and his angels, brethren. And they are far greater in power, glory, and might than we are. He passed them by, and they are reserved in chains until their formal sentencing, which is coming very soon. What should it do to us? We should pray differently. We should talk to our Heavenly Father and thank Him for loving us and choosing us before the foundation of the world and tell Him that we love Him. We should be sober, because this is a sober doctrine. This doesn't make for a foolish people, if it's rightly understood. We should tremble before his word. We should worship him with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. They don't even know what the words mean. They don't even quote the passage. Our God is a consuming fire. It consumed the two sons of Aaron, as I told you last Sunday evening, and it will consume all the wicked very shortly. You know what the Bible says, and I'm done. Here's what the Lord God said. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Nobody tells me who I'm going to love, and that makes his love special. And he has set his love on us. We love him because he first loved us. And brethren, let's love him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Let's go out of here and keep his commandments and love him and pray to fully know his love that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. And do you know who those words are said to in Ephesians 3? The whole family of God, who is named after their Father God in heaven. That's how it starts off in verse 14. Of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Paul said, Them, I want to pray for them to know the full love of God, because it is limited to them. We are part of the family of God. I hope that causes your heart to race and your tongue to want to sing. I know it's late, and I'm sorry. One more, one song. Do you have another one, Eric? Is is it 180? Good.